podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. It is Tuesday, the 23rd of February. We are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network, allows you to go online, change your location. So if you're outside America and you want to access American Netflix, you can do that. If you're from the UK and you have a Now TV subscription, but you're leaving the country for whatever reason and you want to use it, and Brexit no longer allows you to do so, a VPN will allow you to do so. LibertyShield.com. Use the code EPLVPN. And you'll get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, uh, it is Tuesday. There is weather outside that is suitable only for fish. And even at that, you'd feel bad about leaving them outside in it. Um, we had one game of football played last night. Brighton won, Crystal Palace two. How Brighton contrived to lose this game, I have absolutely no idea. Brighton had 75% of the ball. They had 25 shots in the game. Palace obviously had 25% of the ball. They had three shots in the game. Two of them on target, both of them went in. Palace went 1-0 up. Really good work by AU down the right wing. You'd ask questions about Dan Byrne playing as a wing back. His lack of pace really did cause him to get exposed in this one. And there's a cross into the box. Ben White, he's, he has a good position on Mate- uh, Mateta, but Mateta kind of pins him and begins to spin him, and as he spins him, he backheels the ball into the net as the cross comes in. It's a really, really clever goal. It's a really nice bit of play by AU and by Mateta, but the Brighton defence should really be doing a little bit better. They were caught out of position. They were sprinting back, trying to get back in position. Duncan cut out the cross, and as I said, White just gets caught with with Mateta, and he just gets out-muscled. Simple as that. Brighton were dominating the game. They continued to dominate the game, and eventually they got themselves level. Joel Veltman with a nice finish after the ball came into the box, and he arrived at the back post. Really nice finish. First goal of the season for him. Again, someone that doesn't necessarily look quite as comfortable in the Brighton system, the way he's being asked to play, as he otherwise might. When you consider just how good Brighton have been all season long, their lack of goals really has killed them. That was the 10th game of the season where they had 0.5 of a goal more XG than their opponent. The eighth game of the season where they had one XG more than their opponent and failed to win. That's a lot of points they've left on the table this year by not having someone 
who can consistently put the ball in the net for them. And they've got lots of nice footballers. Gross is a good player. I really like McAllister. Trossard is obviously very good. Mopay is very good. I think everybody's become a fan of Yves Basima this year. White, Dunk, Webster, that back three. Now, Webster didn't play last night, obviously, but that back three has functioned very, very well all season. Lamptey, they've missed badly. He's been out now for a while, and they have missed him badly. They missed that outlet. But they're creating loads and loads of chances, and they just can't finish. It's as simple as that. I said it in the summer. been saying it since. They needed to buy a striker, someone that could be a focal point in the attack, and just simply put the ball in the back of the net. I really don't understand how they went from almost signing Darwin Nunes, who decided to go to Benfica instead, which is understandable. I mean, it's Benfica. It's one of the biggest clubs in the world. But to go from almost signing him to then signing nobody and bringing in Danny Welbeck as a free agent, I really just don't understand it. Welbeck has been largely poor this season. They brought in Lalana. He's been an empty shirt all year. He came on last night, and they, their level dropped off. There was just no question their level dropped off. Palace would win the game in the 95th minute. Simple cross from the left-hand side. Dan Byrne, just really, really poor defending, loses the flight of the ball, isn't fully sure where Benteke is, and doesn't take the right angle to block the shot. It's really poor, but it's a great finish from Benteke. Massive credit to him on the volley, controlled across the goal, across the goalkeeper. It's a great finish. It's a great win for Palace. Their fans will be delighted. This is their their biggest rivalry in the Premier League. They will be absolutely thrilled by this. But in no way did they deserve the win. They didn't even deserve a point. They were so comprehensively outplayed. They didn't even deserve a point from this game. Huge credit goes to them for getting the win. But Brighton's issues in the final third are what's hurt hurt them so badly this season. And you see a lot of criticism of Graham Potter. Some of it is fair. But he was let down by his ownership. Now, look, pandemic, smaller club, big losses over the course of the last 12 months, all understandable. But what's going to be a bigger loss? Spending... 15 to 20 million on a Veghorst or, you know, a Gomez who'll get you 15 goals a season and help the players around him act as that focal point, link the play, bring them into the game, not have them having to play back to goal. He'll do the dirty work. That outlay or going down, because as things stand, they are really in the mix of teams that could go down. They're only four points clear of Fulham. Four points. They're one point ahead of Newcastle, who've been terrible for months and months now. And Brighton have been playing good football. They've had a really good run. They beat Spurs. They beat Liverpool. They got some good draws. But they still find themselves in 16. A win last night would have made all the difference to them. It really would have made all the difference. 
They'd have gone to 29 points. They'd have gone above Palace in the league. They'd have been 14th. Instead, 16th, four points off the relegation spots. Fulham looking competent, finally. Brighton have only scored 18 goals all season. No, sorry, I'm wrong. Brighton have scored 26 goals all season. 26. Burnley have scored 18. Brighton have scored 26 goals all season, but that's still not nearly enough. That's level with Newcastle, who've had one striker capable of putting the ball in the net. He's missed. This is his second spell on the sidelines. That striker, Callum Wilson, would have been ideal for Brighton. Ideal for him, for them. And a great fit for him. Same amount of goals as Wolves. Wolves' only real goal scorer fractured his skull a couple of months ago. May not be seen for the rest of the season. And then the only team scoring less than them are the bottom three and Burnley. We don't expect Burnley to score many goals. The bottom three are the bottom three for a reason. Failure in the summer has really hurt them this year. Everything else about them, defensively, possession, transition, build-up play, all of it, really, really good. Just let themselves down when they get into the final third. Defensively, in the bottom half of the league, they've got only Burnley have a better defensive record than them. And Burnley play defensive football. Fulham and, and Wolves have conceded the same amount of goals. Wolves play a very conservative back three and have been exceptionally boring this season. And Fulham have a good defence. Fulham's defence is what's kept them in with a chance for most of the season. Anderson and Tosin, Ariola and goal. Individually, they're better than than what Brighton have by and large. Certainly a better goalkeeper. I would say Anderson and Tosin are better defenders than White and Webster. Dunk is probably the best defender of the lot. White and Webster are better footballers, passers, carrying the ball from the back than the Fulham pair. But as defenders, the Fulham pair are really good. And Fulham have had very good fullback play for most of the seasons since Parker dropped the last ads that got them promoted and, and brought in the new signings, Aina or Kenny Tete uh, and Anthony Robinson. Brighton have had to play centre-backs at full-back pretty much all year long. It's Solly March playing as a wing-back for a good spell, but you know, he, he's in and out. He's not particularly proficient defensively. Lamptey's missed you know, a good half of the season, I think, and he's not particularly good defensively either. But their system, their structure has been excellent. The midfield has been really good when they've played two actual midfielders and not an empty shirt. And Mope and Trossard and McAllister, since he's come into the team, have created a bunch of chances. There's just nobody there to put the ball in the net. Mope's very, very good, but he's a second striker. Trossard is a very good player, but he's a winger. McAllister's a 10. Connolly's a good player, good young player, but again, He's not an out-and-out goal scorer. He's like your modern-day Shane Long. You put him up front with the goal scorer, he'll do all the dirty work, he'll get his own share of goals, 
but you can't rely on them to carry the team through the season. For Brighton coming up, they've West Brom away. That's a game they have to win. Absolutely have to win. Because then it's Leicester at home, Southampton away, then Newcastle at home. Again, that's a must-win game for them. And then Manchester United away. They need to be looking to beat West Brom and Newcastle and then take a draw from the other three games. They need to pick up seven points across these next five games to open a gap and give themselves some breathing space. Disappointing last night. Really disappointing. Played lovely football for large spells. And just fell at the final hurdle. 25 shots in the game. 25 shots in the game. Only got five of them on target. For Palace, they move up to 13th, which is you know in the round where they've been all season. They're probably 11 to 13 points off Roy's 43 to 45 point target for the season. So well on course to, to do what Hodgie wants to do. Uh, they've got Fulham at home next. A game they will absolutely expect to win. Then they get United at home. They beat them at Old Trafford. United are different now. They're winning games, even though they're playing badly at times. Spurs away. They drew with Spurs in the home game. Then West Brom at home. Now, they walloped West Brom. This is a game they have to win. This is a game they have to win. And then Everton away. And that will be a tough one. That will be a tough game. Um, Everton are playing good football. They're getting all their players back. Fulham and West Brom are the two games they need to win. They beat West Brom 5-1 away from home in early December. There's no excuse not to beat them at home. There's no excuse not to beat Fulham at home. If they take those six points, that's absolutely fine. That gets them to 38 points. Again, they're looking for 43 to 45 points for the year. 38 will probably keep you safe this year anyway, but Hodgie likes to have that little bit of a buffer. Doesn't really want to finish 17th or 16th. He wants to be, you know, 13, 14, 15. That's the Hodgie comfort zone. Big win last night. Didn't deserve it. Should have gotten beat, but all credit to them. A win is a win. And that's all that matters at this point in the season, is that a win is a win. We have one game tonight. Uh, Leeds United at home to Southampton. It's a 6pm kickoff, which is odd. But there is Champions League football, so you know that's, that's the reason for it. Um... Both teams could do with a win here. Leeds have lost three of their last four. Saints lost six in a row until their draw with Chelsea at the weekend. They sit 12th and 14th respectively in the league. A win for Leeds will push them above Arsenal into the top half of the table. A win for Southampton will push them above Leeds into 12th. It's a big game for both teams. Uh, Injury-wise, Berardi is obviously still out for Leeds, as is Forshaw. They've missed all season. 
Rodrigo is still out. Pavedo Ocampa is still out. Calvin Phillips is out. And Robin Cock is still recovering from surgery. Now, Diego Loriente is not listed there. He wasn't listed at the weekend. My assumption is he's not fit. My assumption is that he's not fit, and I don't know why he's not listed. He was on the... Actually, to be fair, he was on the bench at the weekend. Didn't come on, but he was on the bench. Now, I think Struyck... Is that how you pronounce his name? Struyck? He is playing very, very well. He's quite young. He's one I think they'll be, you know, very hopeful for. He's only 21 years of age. He is more naturally, I think, a defensive midfielder than a centre-back. But they have Phillips, obviously, as their defensive midfielder when everybody's fit. But he could become a really important squad player for them over the next couple of seasons. Really clever clever by. They brought him in from Ajax. Uh, he spent a year in their academy and then they promoted him into the first team. But I've really enjoyed watching him play this season. I think there's a, a lot to like about his game. He's a progressive passer. He's comfortable carrying the ball. He's got really good aggression to his game. And I always like left-footed centre-backs because there's something nice at watching them ping the ball forward. Um, but yeah, I think he's going to be an important player for Leeds moving forward. I assume he'll start tonight and uh, Loriente will be on the bench. But it'll be good if Loriente can get you know 15 to 20 minutes under his belt and not get hurt. And they can continue to to rebuild him and build up his chronic load that way rather than having to rush him back in. At least at the moment, with Cooper being fit, with Striak being fit, with Luke Ayling uh, fit and available, it can play centre-back if needed. They don't have to rush Lariente back into the into the team. They can take their time with him. This might just be a lost season for him, but he wasn't just bought for this season. He was bought for the long term, and um, and that's how they have to view it. They can't just view it as, you know, we need him in now because he's just going to break down again. And you don't need him in now. You're 12th on the table. You're doing very, very well. You're comfortable. Defensively, you've been poor, but you're great going forward. I mean, Leeds are great going forward. The only teams that have scored more goals than them this season. City are top. United are second. Leicester are third. Chelsea are fifth. Liverpool are sixth. And that's it. They have a top six attack in the league. Now, they do have a bottom four or, uh, bottom four defence. Only West Brom have conceded more. Um, Palace and Newcastle have conceded the same. But none of them can boast a top six attack. So as long as they keep doing what they're doing, Leeds will be fine. And they'll go into the summer, they'll spend some more money. By the sounds of things, Bielsa's very, very settled, very happy with life. So, look, the dream for them lasts as long as he stays. When he leaves, things will have to change and they'll have to become a bit more balanced, <laughs> a little bit more realistic. you know. But while he's there, they can dream the dream because, I mean, he's Marcelo Bielsa. He's, he's a, one of the greats in modern management. The fact that they could attract him as a championship club, speaks to the size of Leeds United, speaks to the power of Leeds United, the, the legacy of Leeds. It's often forgotten how big a club they are just because they were out of the Premier League for so long. But they are one of the giants of English football. You go back to the great Don Revy team. 
they were a giant. They won the last football league division one before the start of the Premier League, Premiership. Um, they're a giant of English football and should be considered that. They're one of the ten biggest clubs in the country. Nobody else attracts Bielsa. Other than maybe the big six, obviously, but they wouldn't be in the championship. Everton wouldn't be in the championship. They've never been relegated. I don't think Villa could have attracted attracted Bielsa. And Villa had more money. Villa have a Champions League or a European Cup. Leeds don't have that. But that Don Revy team were widely respected. And they lasted for years. That was a, a dominant dynasty of a team. Villa was a very short-run thing. Forest the same. Win the league, back-to-back European Cups. And then they sort of fell off. Won a few Cups late in the 90s with Clough, uh, with Brian Clough. But Don Revy sustained that brilliance at Leeds for a long time. And he was a, a truly great manager. Um, obviously, you know, dirty Leeds and all the rest of that stuff. But, you know, they won two league titles, an FA Cup. Uh, the Intercity Fairs Cup twice. They were just a really, really good team. They were one of the best teams in Europe for, you know, five, six years. Back then, only the the league winner got into the European Cup. If it was a top four thing, they'd have been in the European Cup pretty much every year. They were a great team, a really great team. And Bielsa wants to do similar. That's what he wants. He, he's a very ambitious man. He wants to build a great Leeds team. But tonight they'll face a manager in Ralph Hasenhutl, who's also a very good manager, who was also a massive coup for Southampton to land. I mean, he got Leipzig to second in the Bundesliga at the first attempt. And that wasn't Leipzig the way they are now. They were still trying to figure themselves out at the time. Ralph Hasenhutl's a top manager. And I know they've been on the wrong end of some wallopings, and I know they've had this dreadful run of form. But take it back a little while. Go back to when they beat Liverpool. Nobody was all that surprised they beat Liverpool that night. They were playing really, really well. It's just that it fell apart after that. Lost to Leicester. Lost to Arsenal. Lost to Villa. Hammered by United. Lost to Newcastle. Lost to Wolves. like, But before that, they were playing really, really well. And people were saying, isn't it amazing, including myself, isn't it amazing how well they've done in the 13 months since they got beaten by Leicester 9-0, how well they've done to turn things around. They were sixth when they beat Liverpool. Sixth. They've been as high as third, ending a match week this season. At one point, on a Friday night when they won a game, they were actually top. They finished that weekend third. They were sixth when they beat Liverpool. That's only seven games ago, but just shows how tight this league is. That if you have a dreadful run, you can fall off quite badly. And they have fallen off quite badly. It's quite clear, but they're still only in 14th position. So it's not like they're barreling towards the relegation zone. Now, if the bad form keeps up and they lose a couple more in a row... Maybe, maybe they end up scraping, uh, you know, scrapping for their lives with the likes of Newcastle and Fulham and Brighton. But as things stand, they have a four-point cushion on Brighton, a five-point cushion on Newcastle, 
and they're eight points clear of Fulham. So they'll worry about Fulham when Fulham get within five points. That could happen soon, but it's in Southampton's hands to not let it happen at all. Fulham aren't going to win a whole bunch of games coming up. They're not going to automatically become Manchester City just because they've won two of the last five games. Fulham are going to have games where they get walloped. Fulham are going to lose games. They're going to draw games. They're not going to just go on a run. They're not good enough. The league is too tough, and Fulham have a tough enough run coming up. But this game tonight is important for both teams. Bielsa won't want to lose three in a row. But Ralph really needs a win. Ralph really needs a win here. For Saints tonight, Armstrong will have a fitness test, but Walcott is out. Diallo is out. Walker-Peters is still out. That's a massive blow. The lack of fullback depth that's at Hampton is concerning. Uh, Abafemi is out, and Will Smallbone is still out because he obviously done his ACL. So, um, Both sides missing important players. And Calvin Phillips is probably Leeds' most important player. He's probably their best player. Rafinha is probably the only other one in that conversation. Uh, Rodrigo is an important player. Cock is an important player. That's three important starters. Armstrong, if he doesn't play, he's an important player for Southampton. So is Diallo and obviously Walker-Peters. And Walker-Peters has been really good this season. So both sides won't be at full strength, but it should still be a good game of football. It's two very aggressive teams. The high pressing in this game may well break all known records. It'll be interesting to see if they cancel each other out a little bit. Bielsa's more aggressive in his in his style, but Hassan is maybe a little bit more relentless. Hassan is certainly more dogmatic. I think Bielsa will make changes quicker, and he'll slide his team from the four one four one to the back three and move some bits around. And Ralph has struggled a little bit with that this season. But it should be a uh, like I said, six o'clock this evening. Uh, that one kicks off. So again, it should definitely be should definitely be one worth the watch. Uh, Champions League obviously tonight as well. Chelsea take on Atletico Madrid, and uh, Lazio take on Bayern Munich. You'd ha- obviously have to fancy Bayern. They're they're the better team. They've had a couple of bad results lately, but Lazio haven't been great this season. Um, Atletico versus Chelsea is obviously the game with the, the Premier League interest Atleti have been tremendous all season but they've dropped points now in back-to-back league games Levante just seemed to be a little bit of a bogey team for them this season um, things were going so well then they played Levante twice in a couple of days drew away 1-1 and then lost at home 2-0 uh, they are still top of La Liga they're three points clear of Real Madrid but they do have a game in hand they're seven points clear of Barcelona who've played the same amount of games they've actually actually dropped points in three of their last four games having previously only dropped points in three of their previous 20 so maybe a little bit of a dip maybe one eye on this game Simeone did rotate a couple of players at the weekend Uh, Atleti came through their Champions League group in second place behind Bayern. Bayern sort of ran away with it, but Atleti got, you know, they got a good draw against Bayern in in the return leg. They lost away. Um, 
Defensively, they are always going to be great. They've been brilliant this season. Going forward, they've been much better than normal. Like Suarez is having a great season. Joe Felix is very exciting. Angel Correa is having a good season. They brought in Moussa Dembele, formerly of Celtic and, and Fulham, uh, from Lyon on loan, I think with an obligation to buy in the summer. He's a very good player. It gives them another option. They've been playing a lot more back three this season, which is unusual. Simeone has normally been 4-4-2, uh, but he's become a bit more adventurous this season. He's even gone with the 3-1-4-2 at times and uh, used Koke in that sort of the Pirlo role as the one between the three and the four. And it's worked really, really well. So interesting to see what he tries tonight. Uh, Chelsea obviously kind of walked through their uh, Champions League group, topped it, point clear of Sevilla, who they beat and then drew with. And um, they looked quite good. I mean, Krosnodar, not very good. Wren, lots of good young players, but Champions League was a step too far for them. Um especially having sold Rafinha in the summer. Now, I know they bought Doku, but Doku's just a super talented young player. Rafinha's a very, very good player established, and he was key to that team. Uh, so it's a big one for Chelsea. It's a tough game. When the draw was made, I mean, I have to admit I laughed at the idea of Simeone against Frank because Simeone would own him and maybe bring him home and have him, I don't know, polish his fireplace or something. But um, Thomas Tuchel makes this more interesting. Chelsea... Haven't been particularly good going forward under him. Lack of final third production. But they've been good in their build-up play. They've been better defensively. I think this is going to be a tough game. I think both sides are fairly evenly matched. Atleti have a better defensive structure, but the individual defenders aren't all that particularly great. If you look at them, Jimenez is, is, is excellent. But Felipe is not brilliant. Hermoso's good, but not great. It's quite a big downgrade from Lucas Hernandez. Uh, Stefan Savage is, you know, he's not, he's all right. I mean, he's a lot better than he was when he was at Man City, but he's not a top-class defender. They've got a really solid group in midfield. They've got quality in attack. They've got, I think, the best goalkeeper in the world in Jan Oblak. But that defense it does have some flaws. It's the system and it's the management that get them through. But Chelsea have flaws everywhere. Wing-backs who can't defend, centre-backs who are error-prone, a midfield that often lacks balance and an attack that doesn't score enough goals or create enough chances. These are things that Thomas Tuchel needs to sort out. The, the greatest transfer window ever, we were told, has proven to be largely a, you know, a damp squib. Zayic has been injured more than anything. Uh, Havertz has been injured and he hasn't played well. And, and Werner went 14 Premier League games without scoring. So, you know, the, the greatest transfer window ever was nothing of the sort. And those of us who actually care and actually look at these things objectively knew it wasn't the greatest transfer window of all time. It was a good transfer window. There's no question. Sign a lot of talented players. It's a good transfer window. But, I mean, Chilwell's not first choice now. Uh, Alonso's sort of taking his place. Now, he will get a spot back. Alonso did well for Tuchel initially, so Tuchel has stuck with him, but he will bring Chilwell back in. I think Mendy was always just a, you know, a plaster 
on the issue of the goalkeeper, he was never the answer to that. And Thiago Silva, I mean, if he's the answer to your defensive question, to your defensive issues, I'm not sure what the questions you're asking are. So this will be a good game. Uh, 8 p.m. kickoff at the uh, the wonderful Wanda Metropoliano. Should be worth the watch. If you don't fancy that, Lazio versus Bayern will be will be a good game. It won't be a great game, I don't think, because I don't think Lazio are, are a great team. They're sixth in, in Serie A at the moment. Now, they are only one point off fourth. Um, their city rivals, Roma, they're two points off Juve, who are third, but Juve do have uh, a game in hand. They won their last game. Um, they beat Sampdoria at the weekend, having lost to Inter the weekend before. But Bayern are, I mean, Bayern are, they're a machine, really. They're not really a football team, they're a machine. They are only two points clear at the top of the Bundesliga, two points clear Leipzig. Uh, they lost their game at the weekend. They drew the weekend before that. So maybe it's a little bit of a dip in form. They're certainly not the team that we saw last season when they just wiped the floor with everybody. But they've had some injuries. They've had some issues. They've been trying to solve some questions in attack and at centre-back. They played Nicolas Sula right back the other day and it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It made Dan Byrne playing left wing-back look normal. Um, there's the Alaba thing hanging over them. Leroy Sané hasn't really hit the ground running. Muller and Lewandowski are aging and you know there's a little bit of a decline this season from where they were last season. But they're still a great team. And Joshua Kimmich remains one of the top 10 players in the world. And as long as they have him and they have, you know, the likes of Kingsley Coleman, they're going to be really good. And Lewandowski's still a great goal scorer, of course, but he's just not at the same level as he was last season as, as an all-round player. Um, you'd have to fancy Bayern to win that game. Right, that's enough about games coming tonight. Um, I wanted to touch on something that's been really bugging the life out of me. When I started this podcast, I said that one of the things I wanted to avoid was tribalism. And yet, every day when you go on social media, you're just met with this barrage of tribalistic nonsense. So it's Liverpool fans going at City fans, City fans going at Liverpool fans. Arsenal fans going at United fans, United fans going at everybody, and so on and so forth. And what we end up with is this nonsensical, never-ending garbage that is Pep versus Guardiola, Fergie versus everybody, such and such versus Mourinho, such and such versus this person, such and such versus that person. And then the disrespect that I've seen shown to a man I believe is one of the greatest managers the game has seen, Arsene Wenger. Now, when we look at Wenger, those of us that remember him and saw him when he first arrived in England and what he did in building two great Arsenal teams, remember what an incredible manager he is. Others only really remember the last 10 years, which which admittedly were not as good. They weren't. They simply weren't. But Arsene Wenger changed English football more than anyone else. 
whether it's scouting and recruitment, training methods, nutrition, sports science, Wenger was just so far ahead of everybody else. And the things he did that were revolutionary at the time are run-of-the-mill today because of him. Unfortunately for him, some people who don't remember how it was back then don't accept that the things he did were revolutionary, but they simply were. Wenger spent 20 years at Arsenal. 20 years. He won three Premier League titles, going up against an absolute machine in Manchester United. He won seven FA Cups. And the knock on him, of course, is he didn't win in Europe. He got to a UEFA Cup final. He got to a Champions League final. And they lost both of them. Now, the Champions League final, they lost. They lost because they had a man sent off really early. And their backs were to the wall straight away. The the UEFA Cup loss was disappointing, but it is what it is. Jurgen Klopp was roundly praised for taking Liverpool to a UEFA Cup final, or a Europa League as it is now, and the Champions League final, losing both of them. Roundly praised. Wenger was disparaged because of it. Three league titles. Seven FA Cups. When the FA Cup mattered, he was winning the FA Cup. The last three were, you know, it, it, the era where the FA Cup is less important. But he still won three in four years to end his Arsenal career. So I wanted to have a quick look across his tenure as Arsenal manager. He takes over. He gets appointed in August of 96. But because of his contract with Grampus 8 in Japan, he can't take over for a month. Now, this was an Arsenal team that had finished fifth under Bruce Ryuk. They were disappointed in how the season had gone because they'd spent massive money on David Platt and Dennis Burkamp. And th- those were supposed to be the moves that sort of put them over the top and, and got them um, got them back in the mix for a title. They'd finished 12th the season before. They'd lost the uh, Cup Winners Cup final. That was the season where Graham, uh, George Graham was sacked, having been caught up in the Bung scandal. Ryuk was never really a top-level manager, and the job was, was too big for him. But they get rid of him, they appoint Wenger. Nobody's ever heard of him in England. Nobody knew who he was. Arsene Who was the headline in every paper. No, no one knew much about him. He'd been at Monaco. He'd won... Um, He'd won the French League, but that was the better part of a decade before he came to Arsenal. He'd been in Japan. Again, he just wasn't really a known quantity. He comes to Arsenal. Before he's even in the country, he signs Remy Gard as a free agent and Patrick Vieira for $3.5 million. That signing alone makes most of what he does in the transfer market a success because that is one of the all-time great transfer Premier League signings that anyone's ever made. A couple of months later they signed Nicholas Anelka for five hundred grand. 
They sell John Hartson for five million to West Ham, having bought him for I think two million from Luton a few years before, and that basically covers Vieira and Anelka and anything else they they might might want to do. That season, they finished third. Ian Wright's their top scorer. You can see the makings of something good starting to take place. Wright and Burkamp and Elka starts to look promising as a squad player. The next season, they win the league. So his first full season, with the preseason, with time to prepare, with real time to go out in the transfer market, they win the league. He brings in Matty Upson from Luton, solid centre-back, would go on to play for a bunch of different clubs for a quite a long time. He had a very good career. Gilles Grimande came in from Monaco, was a solid citizen. Uh, Luis Boamorte played for a number of Premier League clubs. Good signing. Mark Overmars for £7 million from Ajax. Brilliant signing. Scores the goal that wins them the league. Emmanuel Petit. Alex Maniger comes in. Again, no one's ever heard of him in England. Uh, he ended up having a really good career as, you know, largely a backup goalkeeper, but he played for a lot of top clubs. And uh, Christopher Ray it was brought in as well, but, you know, small signing, 300,000. They sold Paul Merson for $4.5 million and a few other squad players, which probably brought it up to about $6.5 million of a of money in. And he probably spent eyeballing at about fifteen million. So less than ten million net spend wins them the title. Also wins them the FA Cup. This is the first great Wenger team. The back four and goalkeeper he inherited. He inherited Seaman, Dixon, Winterburn, Bold, Adams, and Keown. But he builds off of them. He also inherited Burkamp and Wright. And, uh, but Wright, Wright had started to play a little bit less in this season. And Elka was playing more. It was almost like a split, you know, split striker system where it was one of them plus Burkamp. Overmars on one wing. And then the right wing spot, Ray Parler played quite a lot. Um, the Romford Pele, as he, as he liked to call himself. Uh, the next season then, 98-99, they win the Charity Shield. They get to the FA Cup semi-finals. They finish second in the league. Manchester United win the treble this season. One of the all-time great teams that English football, that any football has ever seen. That's who beats them. The treble winning United team. Transfer-wise, he brings in Freddie Lundberg, Noanku Kanu, Jermaine Pennant. Not a great, not a great lot of business, but Lundberg is the key signing here. But three million what a servant he was for Arsenal. And I've only just discovered that his actual first name is Carl. Carl Frederick Lundberg. I, you know, I didn't know that until now. Um, Ian Wright leaves. It's the end of an era for that. But again, not a massive amount of um, of players brought in. David Platt had retired. Squad was starting to age in terms of Dixon and Winterburn and the centre-backs and goalkeeper, but Lundberg was an important signing, and like I said, they finished second. Finished second again the next season. Um, again, you're still coming up against that incredible United team. 
So it's not like he's going up against poor teams or average teams. He brings in Henri, brings in Silvino, with a view to him being the long-term left-back. Signs Davor Suker from Real Madrid, the brilliant Croatian striker. Probably a little bit past his best at this point. Uh, Oleg, uh, Oleg Lushny, the experienced Ukrainian right-back, was brought in. Solid player. Always did a good job for them. They sell Nicholas Anelka for $23.5 million. So this summer, he makes a profit. They still finish second. Finish second again following year, again to that United team. Again, it's one of the greatest teams anyone's ever seen. They bring in Loren, they bring in Robert Perez, Edu, Sylvan Viltord. All good players, all played key roles for Arsenal. Winterburn goes, Suker goes, like I said, he was past his best and they signed him. Overmars goes for 25 million. Emmanuel Petit goes for 7 million. Now bear in mind they bought the two of them for 10.5 million. They've just sold them for 32 million. Again, it's a massive net profit on the year. Perez was 7 million. Loren was about 4. Edu was about 6. They're making a massive profit. They finish second. Again, they move into 0102 and they win the league and the FA Cup. That year, they brought in Francis Jeffers' flop. Giovanni Van Bronckhorst, really important signing. Saul Campbell, one of the top two centre-backs the Premier League has seen, in my view. Um, Yanishi Inamato, who I always felt was just signed to sell shirts. Richard Wright, $6 million from Ipswich. That didn't work. This is a bad summer transfer window for Wenger. They spent a lot of money, and only Van Bronckhorst turned out to be a player worthy of playing for Arsenal. They sold Silvino, who hadn't really worked out for them, but they made a, a good profit on him. Um, and again, they win, they win the double. Oh two, oh three. Again, they finish second to United. They do win the FA Cup that year. They brought in Gilberto Silva and Pascal Sagan. Sagan was a, a solid centre back, nothing spectacular. Adams and Dixon retire. They sell Richard Wright. They sell Matty Upson. Sell him at a profit. They lost money. And Richard Wright, but over this summer window, they make a profit and they win the league. So he's at the club now six, seven years. They've made a, a profit on transfer in at least three of them. Overall, they're at a net profit, not a net spend. Oh three, oh four. He brings in Senderos for on the cheap, Jens Lehmann for a million and a half, Jose Reyes for 10.5. Good player, didn't always work out all that well for Arsenal, but a talented player. He signs Sesk on a free and signs Robin van Persie for 3 million. Seaman leaves, uh, Lushny leaves. They're the only two notable ones. But it's not the biggest net spend. It's 15 million. They go unbeaten. It's the greatest single Premier League season. And I don't care about points totals. Give them to me all you want. They went unbeaten for 38 games. Yes, they drew 12 of them. They went unbeaten for 38 games. That, to me, 
goes over everything else. That's just incredible consistency. That team was phenomenal. Lehman and goal, Loren at right back, uh, Ashley Cole at left back, Saul Campbell and either Colo Toure or for a few games, Martin Keown at centre back. Silva and Vieira in central midfield was perfect. Lumberg on the right, Perez on the left, Burkamp and Henri up front. Back to front, that team is brilliant. Lehman was good but not great, but he was he was a solid goalkeeper, rarely made mistakes. Loren was very good going forward. Ashley Cole's one of the two best cent- two best left backs the Premier League has ever seen, along with Dennis Irwin. Saul Campbell, I, I think he's top two CB in the in the history of the Premier League. Maybe top three. Adams was up there, but Adams' best just probably came slightly before the Premier League. Um, no, actually, to be fair, they wouldn't have. They would have come during the Premier League, but still. So it's Adams, it's Adams and, and Campbell with Carvalho third then for me. It could even be Adams and Carvalho. But either way, Campbell's in that discussion. Vieira is absolutely one of the two or three best midfield players the Premier League has seen. Gilberto Silva, from a purely defensive midfield point of view, is right in that mix as well. Robert Perez was a sensational footballer. Absolutely sensational. Burkamp is one of the ten best players I've ever seen. He was just different. And Henri, I think, is the greatest player of the Premier League era. For the career in the Premier League. Ronaldo obviously went on and did amazing things at Real. Suarez was great for a couple of seasons, but went on to be even better at Barca. For what they did in the Premier League, I don't think there's been one better better than Thierry Henry. That Arsenal team that Wenger had built, sensational. That's three league titles that he's won now. Going up against an absolute monstrous team that Manchester United were able to put together. Ferguson was comfortably outspending him. Liverpool were comfortably outspending him. Chelsea comfortably outspending him. This 03-04 season, remember, is the first season of Abramovich. And Chelsea's net spend on this season is more than Wenger's was from the day he arrived to the end of this season. Chelsea spent more in one summer than he had spent as a net spend to this date. He went unbeaten. And then the story starts to change a bit. That's the last league title. They never win it again. The following year, they finished second to Mourinho's incredible Chelsea team. And they won the FA Cup. Keown left, Parler left, Wiltord left. They lost 10 million on Jeffers. Jeffers is probably the worst signing he's made to this point. Canu leaves. They bring in Almunia, Flamini. And Abue. They don't strengthen that summer when they need to strengthen, when they've just won the league and they need to strengthen. They don't give him the money to spend. They make a net profit coming off a season where he went unbeaten and won the league. That is shambolic. The following season, Walcott leaves, Adebayor leaves. 
sorry, Walcott signs, Adebayor signs, Abu Diaby signs, Alex Schleb signs. He was a very good player. Uh, Bentner arrives for 75 grand. You'd swear it was 75 million the way the man thinks of himself. Um, Alex Song came in on loan. They sold Pennant and then they sold Patrick Vieira. And that's where it all starts to really go in the wrong direction. The linchpin of the team is now gone. The guy who had gone toe-to-toe with Roy Keane in those midfield battles for years is now gone. He's gone to Juventus. And Arsenal were never really the same team. They get to the final of the Champions League where they lose to Barcelona 2-1. Lehman is sent off after 18 minutes. They still go 1-0 up. Saul Campbell scores the goal. And they hang on and they hang on and they hang on and then they run out of steam. But they overcame Villarreal in the semi-finals. That was a really good team. Juventus in the quarterfinals. Real Madrid in the round of 16. And in their group, they had Ajax, Thun of Switzerland, and Sparta Prague. And that was really it. That was the last time they ever got close to winning that competition. The only time they ever really got close to winning it, in truth. But that spell, Arsenal were sensational. Absolutely sensational. Despite being outspent by United, by Liverpool, now by Chelsea. They won three league titles, a bunch of FA Cups, got to a Champions League final. That spell, Wenger was brilliant. He was a genius. And after that, it just all becomes a little bit too much. They move into the Emirates. And this now becomes the crutch with with, with which the owners get out of having to spend major money to try and compete. 06-07, they bring in Alex Song, Danielson, not the good one, the the centre midfield child, he was 18 when they signed him, and Thomas Rizicki. But they lose Burkamp, they lose Perez, they lose Saul Campbell, they lose Jose Antonio Reyes, they lose Ashley Cole, they lose Loren, they get William Gallas back in the Ashley Cole deal. But now their title winning team, the Invincibles team, by the summer of 2006, of 2006 and that team won, this, won the title summer 2004, by summer 2006, it's nearly gone. It's nearly gone. The left back is gone. The centre back is gone. The linchpin in midfield is gone. The genius is gone. The other genius is gone. There's still good players there. They've still got Henri. They've still got Gilberto Silva. But that team is gone. It broke up within two years. And they didn't give him money to replace it. They tried to do it on the cheap. They finished fourth. The next season, they finished third. Again, not a whole bunch of backing. They break about even on the net spend. 
get some decent players in, Bakari Sanya, Lasana Diara. But he's being asked now to compete with mega money Chelsea, always rich United, Liverpool under Benitez who are starting to to ramp up towards being a title contender. He's still doing it. He's still finishing third. But it's not quite enough. 0809, they finished fourth. Sign Aaron Ramsey, Samir Nasri, Arshavan. But they sell Fleb. They sell Le- Lehman leaves, Slomini leaves, Gilberto Silva leaves. Now the title team is pretty much gone. It is literally just Colo and Henri. And that's it. That's all that's left. And the players they're bringing in are good players, but they're not necessarily the same type of players. Then they start to lose money, lose players to Man City. Man City get the money. Colo goes there. Adebayor goes there. They bring Saul Campbell back in as a free agent because they're so desperate at centre-back. Thomas Vermeilen arrived. But again, this season they had a net, a net profit of £30 million in 09-10. And he still finishes third. Following year, they bring in Koscielny, Squalagi, bunch of kids, bunch of free agents. Campbell goes again, Eduardo goes. It's just not the same Arsenal team anymore. But he's still getting them top four. 11-12, again, they finish third. They're competing with mega-rich United, mega-rich Chelsea, mega-rich City. And they're still finishing third. Spurs were really good at this point as well. Obviously, Liverpool had fallen off at this point a little bit post-Rafa. He spends a bit of money, 2011. Some of it well. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Per Mertesacker, Mikel Arteta. Finds a young Hector Bellerin for for 400 grand in the summer 2011. Um, Lehman retires. Gail Clichy leaves to go to Manchester City. Sesk leaves to go to Barca. Samir Nasri leaves to go to City. So again, it's an enormous net profit. 25 million of a net profit. And still, he's finishing top four. Again, the following season. Players brought in, cost 47 million. Podolski, Giroud, Santi Cazorla, Nacho Monreal. Players leave for 47.5 million. Including Robin Van Persie, who was sold to his biggest rival, Alex Ferguson. Now, just imagine for a second that Mo Salah decided he wanted to leave Liverpool and the owners went and sold him to Man City. How do you think Klopp would react? I don't think he'd take it very well. I really don't think he'd take it very well. Wenger just got on with it, finished fourth, 
The next year, does it again, finishes fourth. That summer, they brought in Mesut Ozil. That was their big signing for that summer. Mesut Ozil, great player. 42.5 million. The rest, Yaya Sonogo for 400 grand. Flamini back in on a free, despite being years past useful. Semi Ajay, who's currently been awful for West Brom, they brought him in on a free transfer from Charlton. They loaned in Kim Kalstrom and his infamous back. But again, they sold Gervinho, they sold Andre Santos. He was awful anyway. Uh, they sold Victor Manoni, sold Frimpong. Remember Frimpong? What a player. Um, loads of lads out on loan. You look at some of the names there. Emmy Martinez, currently one of the best goalkeepers in the league. Wenger found him. Joel Campbell was meant to be the next big thing. Never really got a work permit. Uh, Cocky, and I think Arsenal bought him for free and sold him for like 10 million. But Wenger was always finding these gems and, and developing them and selling them on. Finishes third in 14-15. That's the season they brought in Alexis Sanchez. Matteo Debucci, poor signing. Callum Chambers, that was the year everybody decided to buy somebody from Southampton. He gets his own back on Fergie by spending $16 million on Danny Welbeck. The less said about most of this transfer window, the better. Um, really... Really not good. Not a good transfer window this one. But again, still finishes third. 15-16, finishes second. That's the weird season where Leicester win the league. Jeffrey and Adelaide found for, you know, half a million quid or whatever it was. Peter Cech brought in from Chelsea. Uh, Mohamed Elneny brought in. Spending a bit of money now. They're nearly 10 years in the new stadium. And they're spending a bit of money. And by I do mean a bit. They had a twenty million net spend in fifteen sixteen. Twenty million. Sixteen seventeen, the first season that he finishes outside the top four. He bought badly this summer. He bought Xhaka. He bought Lucas Perez, and he bought Mustafi. All flops. All flops. That was a bad summer for Wenger. And they deserved to finish fifth that year. And then his final year was 17-18. They finished sixth. They win the FA... Oh, sorry, they won the FA Cup the year before. Uh, 16-17. 17-18, they finished sixth. It's his worst ever finish. Second time finishing outside the uh, top four. Spends big money, brings in Kalasnic on a free, uh, Lacazette arrives, Mkhitaryan arrives in the swap deal for Alexis, and they buy Aubameyang. In general, solid moves, Barrett. I mean, Lacazette or Mkhitaryan and Sanchez didn't work out for anybody. Sanchez is currently warming the bench at Inter Milan. He doesn't even get on the bench most games. Uh, whereas Mkhitaryan's actually been brilliant for Roma this season. So he was clearly the they got the better end of that deal. They actually got, I think, some money for him as well. Uh, but they sell Ox. They sell Giroud. This season, they spent $104 million. They brought in 118 in uh, transfer fees. Now, 
It's a costly summer in more ways than spending money, though. Ishmael Bannister leaves for minimal money to go to Empoli. He's now one of the best centre midfielders in Europe playing for AC Milan. Daniel Malin leaves for peanuts to go to PSV Eindhoven, now one of the best young strikers in the world. This was Wenger, one of Wenger's failures, was not being able to keep these younger players and find a pathway for them into the team. Others like Jeffrey Rene Adelaide that I'd mentioned, Serge Gnabry, obviously probably the main one. Um, these are lads that should have been making their way into the Arsenal first team and maybe, just maybe could have sustained the level. But 22 seasons, only two outside the top four. Three league titles, seven FA Cups. Pretty much a net profit over his entire tenure at the club. The second half of his tenure there, competing with Romans Chelsea, Oil Rich City, United, who just always had more money to spend than them. Liverpool, in this these last two seasons, under Jurgen Klopp, had become a force. Spurs, under Pochettino, had become a force. The big six had become the big six at this point. It had been, you know, the top four to this point. City and Spurs weren't part of it. City bought their way in. Spurs built their way in. And unfortunately for Arsenal, they had the least money to spend. Because the crutch always was, oh, but we've got this new stadium. We've got this shiny stadium. And it's a great stadium. It's fantastic. It doesn't fit in your trophy cabinet. And your fans don't care. They want trophies. You're not parading down the street for your stadium. That's le- Wenger's legacy is the first 10 years and the stadium. That's what his legacy is. The first 10 years and the stadium. He also helped build a new training ground, which at the time was by far the best in Europe. That was paid for largely with the uh, Arte- with the Anelka money, which is why he didn't get to reinvest that in the team. But what that man did to keep that team that competitive for so long while never really having a whole bunch of money to spend was absolutely sensational. He took charge of 1,235 games as Arsenal manager. He won 707 of them, drew 280 and only lost 248 games as Arsenal manager. A 57.2% win record. It was just amazing what he did. The only manager that really went head-to-head, toe-to-toe with Ferguson consistently. And he did it for the best part of a decade until the funding got pulled properly from under his feet. 
Mourinho popped up, did it for three years, got the sack, gone. That's it. Rafa tried, but only really did it for a year. 08, 09. By the time Mancini appeared at City, Ferguson was on the way out. United were on the wane. But Wenger took on Ferguson when Ferguson was at the peak of his powers. And didn't just compete. He beat him frequently. Took three league titles off him. Arsene Wenger is the only manager who did that. There's a reason that when Mourinho took it, took over at Chelsea, he set his focus on Wenger and built a rivalry with Wenger. Because he knew he had to get through Wenger. You see them now, see them when they did be in sports together, uh, punditry, incredible respect between the two. And it's not just respect. From Mourinho's point of view, that's someone he really admires. That's someone he looks up to. The problem for Wenger is he was never funded properly. They used the training ground in the stadium as things to hide behind. And he got stretched too thin. He was asked to do far far too much of the club. Some of that was his own fault. He refused the idea of a director of football. Whereas if he just been been willing to modernize a little bit more which is what he had done to make himself a revolutionary figure 20 years before if he'd just been able to cede a little bit of power i think he would have kept them in the top four and maybe been able to rebuild a great team he changed football in england more than anybody he modernized the game He built two great teams, the second of which, to me, is still the best single-season Premier League team anyone's put together, and they were brilliant to watch. They were brilliant to watch, but they could fight. If you wanted to play football against them, they'd they'd just outplay you. If you wanted to fight them, they'd just outfight you. They just had animals in the team. Scrappers, lads that would get right down in the trenches, kick lumps out of you, and then nutmeg you before banging at the top corner. They were just brilliant. And he did it all while having his best players sold on him. Overmars, Petit, Anelka. He just kept turning it over and turning it over. And eventually he just couldn't do it anymore. But to see the disrespect levied towards him that I've seen in the last while just bugs the life out of me. It's mainly from kids that didn't witness the great Arsenal teams under him. And it's the same thing with the morons who, you know, led the Wenger out campaign. Johnny Come Lately fans, loudmouths, people wanting attention on the internet looking to make themselves famous off the back of, you know, being contrarians. They didn't deserve Arsene Wenger. And I'm glad he's gone now. Because he deserved so much better 
than how he was treated by large portions of the fan base. He deserves so much better than how he was treated by the club for the majority of his time there. And he deserves so much better than the abuse he takes from imbeciles on social media who really don't know what they're talking about. Arsene Wenger is on the Mount Rushmore of Premier League managers. That is not my opinion. That is a fact. Three league titles and an unbeaten season with one of the greatest teams you'll ever see play. Simple as that. Going to wrap up with the gossip real quick. Uh, English goalkeeper Dean Henderson will seek to leave Manchester United in the summer if he is not installed as their first choice next season. He needs to leave. He's not going to be installed as first choice because De Gea will still be there and the only way they move on from De Gea is if they bring in somebody else. It will not be Dean Henderson. De Gea will not sit behind him and nobody's going to buy him. The only move I can see is De Gea for Donnarumma. That's it. Tottenham will replace Arby, Tottenham will place RB Leipzig boss Julian Nagelsmann at the top of a list of potential targets to replace Jose Mourinho. Uh, they can place him wherever they want. They're not going to get him. I think it'll be Brendan Rodgers. If and when it happens, I think it will be Brendan Rodgers. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain are ready to revive their interest in Arsenal's Hector Bellerin with the Spurs fullback prepared to move and also thought to be a target for Barcelona. Did these teams not watch him play? Do these teams not watch him play? I don't believe for a minute that PSG want him because Pochettino loves his fullbacks and I don't think he'd want him. Barca might bring him back because he's from Barcelona. He was in their academy. But, I mean, it's Sergio Roberto and um, the kid they brought in from Ajax in the summer, Serginho Dest, they've got better fullbacks already. They don't need him. Manchester United have refused to sanction a clause that would permit Jesse West Ham to automatically sign Jesse Lingard for the right price at the end of the season. Yeah, they, so they refuse an obligation to buy. It's, you don't need to word it like that. You could just say United wouldn't include an obligation to buy. Everybody knew that anyway, so that's just nonsense. Uh, Barcelona presidential hopeful Tony Frexa believes it would be possible to sign both Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland. It would if you weren't a billion quid in debt. Like, they're a billion euro in debt. Think of that. A billion euro as a football club. That's how much debt they have. This is nonsense. (laughs) They don't have a chance of signing either of them. Mbappe wants to earn the same amount of money as Neymar if he used to stay at Paris Saint-Germain. Understandable, he's every bit as good, if not better, at this point. Barcelona have intensified their interest in Real Sociedad's Sweden forward Alexander Isaac as they look to bring in a new striker. He's a good player. I don't think he's Barcelona standard, and certainly not yet. Um, Republic of Ireland fullback Matt Doherty faced an uncertain future at Tottenham with Jose Mourinho harboring doubts over his chances of succeeding. It was always a bad signing, bad fit for everybody. Uh, shouldn't have happened. RB Leipzig are prepared to sell Tottenham target Marcel Sabitzer, 26-year-old Austrian midfielder, and are assessing potential replacements for the summer transfer. This is the summer they have to sell him while his value is at its highest. He'll be a good buy for pretty much anybody. He's a, he's a really, really good player 
versatile, can play anywhere. Um, Newcastle owner Mike Ashley remains reluctant, reluctant to part with Steve Bruce. Um, they BBC have called him Steve Brunce, B-R-U-N-C-E. Um, I, I would imagine that's because an unpopular owner wants an unpopular manager to deflect the blame. That's as simple as that. Jurgen Klopp is said to be hugely impressed by Brighton centre defender Ben White. This is regurgitated nonsense. Uh, nobody who watches Ben White defend will be impressed by his defensive ability. And uh, he's not good enough in the air or good enough defensively to play for Liverpool. That's just what it is. Uh, Juventus have asked Atletico Madrid about the possibility of signing Alvaro Morata on loan. He's already on loan at the club. That is very weird. Uh, Chelsea coach Thomas Tuchel has admitted to trying to sign Uruguay forward Luis Suarez during his time at Paris Saint-Germain, but is not considering bringing the ex-Liverpool striker to Stamford Bridge. Suarez wouldn't join anyway, so it's absolutely redundancy. Uh, that's it. That is the gossip. That is the show. Thank you to Guy Drinkle, as always. Thank you to you for listening to me prattle on about Arsene Wenger, but just put some respect on the man's name. Thank you to Fox Horn for the music. I'll see you tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.